Dear media companies, beware the frenemy called Facebook. And magazines on iPads, what could go wrong? It was the next big thing, but the data says it's a big bust. Why? This is episode five of Media Unplugged, the podcast that goes behind the spin to reveal what's really happening in media. Media Unplugged with Tom A. Sacker and Mark Ramsey. Welcome to Media Unplugged. I'm Mark Ramsey. And I'm Tom A. Sacker. Tom, first up today, we have a piece from GigaOM. Uh, Dear media companies, beware the frenemy called Facebook. The title of the piece is actually a tip for media companies. Facebook isn't your enemy, but it's not your friend either. For some reason, they stayed away from the term frenemy, which I don't really understand (laughs) since it so naturally fits with what their argument is here. But the idea is that uh, obviously uh, media brands, and especially in this piece they're talking about news media brands, understand the critical importance of social discovery and social sharing of news that that is how discovery happens nowadays. There's a quote in here from the former New York Times social media editor, Liz Heron, and the quote is, because, you know, everyone's trying, all these media brands are trying to game Facebook's algorithm to figure out how they get their news stuff to work better. And her quote is, the only real secret to getting lots of interaction from Facebook for your content is to create and post great content. There you go. (laughs) I always love that. (laughs) Just do something well and you won't have to worry. What's your take on this? (laughs) Uh, yeah, no, that is, that, that, what kind of information is that, right? <laughs> Listen, does Facebook play favorites in the newsfeed algorithm? Well, they, you know, they say no. I mean, does it decide what news you see? Again, they say no. They say it's a user's past behavior that does that, right? That the newsfeed is, well, I don't think they use the word completely personalized, but they say it's personalized. So I don't think anyone is really sure whether it is or not. So what's the point of all of this? Uh, it's, you know, it's his uh, simplest pie. I, I don't know where that analogy comes from because, I don't know, <laughs> pie is not that simple to me. But it's, it's about eyeballs. It's about attention. Attention today is media's currency. And if they could, media companies would love to figure out how to hold on to that currency and gain more of it by gaming that algorithm. Right. Right. And they're using the assets they have, which is, you know, what's historically been called news. I think part of the problem is the fact that Facebook's object is called a, quote, news feed, which suggests that the contents of that feed are, quote, news. Because when I think of most news media brands, and I'm talking about the ones having challenges trying to game this system, um, we're talking about something that's different from, I think, what what the winners in the game traffic in, what the Huffington Post and the BuzzFeeds traffic in primarily. When I think of the newsfeed, I think more of currency in the form of not social currency, but what's current and what's relevant and, you know, what creates social karma. That is not necessarily the same as quote-unquote news in the definition of the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. You know what I mean? Oh, no, absolutely. Uh, well, Facebook is probably saying is this is news to you. <laughs> <laughs> right and you know and, and the news organizations they're discovering that increasingly they're getting their currency their eyeballs from facebook and and their mobile app and they're anxious about it i mean who wouldn't be because it's a lack of control 
And that's making them really worried. Well, it's a lack of control, but I guess it could also be argued that, uh, you know, whoever said news deserves all that attention and all those eyeballs. After all, if you look at who's winning in this game right now, the uh, number one is Huffington Post. Number two is a, a site that almost nobody seems to have heard of called PlayBuzz which is, a, according to the article, a site founded by the son of a former Israeli prime minister that relies heavily on user-generated content and especially quizzes. In a recent month, according to one post, nine out of the top ten most shared posts consisted of either quizzes or fake news reports. Now, <laughs> <laughs> what does that have to do with the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post? Other than they're competing for those same eyeballs, right? It comes back to that lesson we talked about, I think, in the last episode, that this whole game is about desire and Facebook's going to feed people whatever they're hungering for. If it's Amanda Bynes accusing her dad of sexually abusing her instead of the Ebola crisis, then whatever. Serve it up if that's what people are looking for. And I think that's that's a critical point. And I think that's what some of the news media uh, fail to understand. There's a quote in here from... um, uh, from someone named David Higgerson, digital publishing director at Trinity Mirror in the UK. Our job as journalists is to be part of that community and give people the content they want. I don't think that's true at all. I don't think it's the job of the news media to be the guy who runs for high school class president. You're, no, listen, you're, you're right, but here's the rub. If the media companies want that information to hit the eyeballs of the people that are scrolling through whatever they're scrolling through, and they want to stop sweating Facebook, then they have to create their own platforms and continuously fill it with engaging content when and how people want to consume it. Look, I get push notifications on my on my devices that a new issue of whatever newsletter, magazine, newspaper is available, right? Which, by the way, I get free for, for subscribing to the print edition. Uh, the Atlantic Media. Look at what the, look at what these guys are doing now. They know exactly who they're trying to appeal to, and what those people believe and desire and how to appeal to them. They have brands like uh, The Atlantic, Government Executive, National Journal, and they just released something new like within the last year or so called Quartz. Mm-hmm. Have you seen this? Yes. Okay, so what's Quartz? It's a business news website, and it's a curated email newsletter, a morning news briefing, if you will, and it's designed specifically to be engaging and quickly scanned on a mobile device. Clean, simple text, links to content. It's designed to be habit-forming, simple, Mm -hmm. high-quality, consistent. Because you have to break people of that Facebook habit. Mm -hmm. You have to give them something as easy as engaging. That's a great point. And I I think ultimately, as I look at the things that win this algorithm war, um, you can't help coming away from the conclusion that it has more to do with entertainment in one sense or another um, you know, quizzes, for example, than it does with quote-unquote news. Even when we look at television and we look at uh, what's happening there on the media scale that's designed to generate ratings, i.e. attention, you know, what does NBC do? They focus on health news. What does CNN do? They focus on the plane that's missing. Um, these are, uh, you know, news only to a degree. Past that, it's really more about entertainment, I would argue, than anything else. And uh, it becomes a challenge for these guys because ultimately what happened to the idea that news was about civic obligation, that news was about what you need to know, what, not what you want to know? Um, maybe news isn't built to game the Facebook algorithm. No, it's not because, because why? Because they're still, they're still trying to get important information out to mass audiences. Mm-hmm. In most of these platforms that we're dealing with, 
are, are turning more and more niche, right? What you see in Facebook right. is what's being fed to you based on your interest and your friends. And, you know, and, and we've talked about this and, and we saw this coming with the internet a decade ago that the marketplace was going to explode with options and it was going to fragment driven by people's freedom to choose combined with these ridiculously low barriers to entry in the marketplace. So brands have to better appeal to the, either to their niche audience, to their unique subculture of people, and then figure out how to go deep with them, right? With additional products, services, information to engage, inform, and entertain them. The Atlantic's now running an an, uh, annual conference through Quartz. Mm -hmm. You know, so they they have to look at who their audience is and understand how they want to engage with that audience. Deeper, not broader. Uh, Absolutely. And and by the way, I don't know about you, but I love the line at the end of that article that says that anyone doing business with Facebook should understand the nature of Facebook, just as the frog should have kept the scorpion's true nature in mind. You remember that that fable? (laughs) I do. Yeah, the scorpion meets the frog on the bank of a stream, and the scorpion says, dude, can I, you know, I can't swim. Do me a favor. Carry me across on your back. And the frog says, well, how do I know you won't sting me? And the scorpion says, duh, because if I do, I will die too. So the frog, he's satisfied with the answer. He sets out with the scorpion on his back, but in midstream, the scorpion stings him, and the frog feels the onset of paralysis and starts sinking, knowing they're both going to drown. He has enough time to gasp, why did you do that? And the scorpion says, hey, man, it's my nature. (laughs) (laughs) You are listening to Media Unplugged with Tom Asacker and Mark Ramsey. Topic two from Redef, magazines on iPads. It's the next big thing, but the data says it's a big bust. Why? The article is titled, Letter to the Publisher, Digital Magazines Aren't Working. And I I think the first thing that strikes me about this is the fact that this is news that requires a letter to the publisher when the (laughs) publishers surely know that this is what's going on. There's uh, the, the article explains... Despite volume growth of over 40% in 2013 and nearly 75% the year before, digital magazines have achieved only a 3.5% share of total consumer magazine circulation. To put this in perspective, it's less than one-ninth of the penetration rate enjoyed by e-books, and growth has already begun to plummet. Um, Furthermore, they go on, the failure of digital magazines can no longer be attributed to a lack of access since nearly one in two U.S. adults now own a tablet and one in three possesses an e-reader. I think this is so telling because this is so classic. You can visualize the dawn of the iPad when someone at a magazine publisher says, oh, thank God, there's a form factor which looks vaguely like a magazine page. Surely we can just, you know, put our product on that platform and everything will be resolved, right? Well, it's not, it sounded like it made a lot of sense, didn't it? I mean, okay, people are reading magazines. Okay, good. Increasingly, people are reading documents online and on their iPads. Okay, mm-hmm. let's put our magazine online and on these iPads, and people will read them too, right? Now, that's not the real question, is it? The real question is, will people pay for it? Or will enough of them read it that we can sell ads to somehow monetize or extract value from their free subscriptions. And then it gets really hairy because if they do start doing that and if advertising, you know, if the advertising run ads in these magazines that have a direct response mechanism, then the next question is, will people click on those ads? So this whole thing is, uh, 
Uh, I don't know. It's like a Pandora's box, okay? Well, it is, but I think it begins with the question of, well, it begins with the premise, which is this is a problem of magazine publishers, and the iPad was viewed by those publishers as a solution to their problem, having nothing whatsoever to do with the presumed problems of consumers. Even in this article, it says, it's clear that some publications are making the form factor work, but their rarity is surprising. Well, first of all, why is that surprising? Secondly, it's not about form factor. That's right. That's a that's a that's a an incorrect way of thinking about the problem. The form factor is not the issue. It's like saying Here's a play on a stage. I'm going to put a movie camera in front of that play, and the output, I'm going to call that a movie because the movie has a different form factor. No, the movie is an entirely different medium that follows entirely different rules. And furthermore, I would argue that people buy a magazine, i.e. the paper kind, for, they buy it for a different job than they buy stuff that goes on the iPad. I think to a large extent, Tom, and I would be interested in you thinking about this, I think they're actually buying the paper. One of the things, and I've noticed with buying ebooks and buying books, for example, is I can buy a lot of ebooks and then forget about them. Right. I don't, I don't ever read them. But if I buy a book and I see it sitting on my desk, I'm compelled to pick it up and start reading it again. And maybe it's the same thing with magazines. You know, you buy a magazine and it's sitting on your coffee table and you're lounging around, you pick it up and you start reading it and looking through it. But you may not be as inclined to do that if these things are sitting on thousands of apps sitting on an iPad somewhere. Well, not just that, but think of the work that's involved to get them on those apps. I mean, you probably, like I, have probably tried to download a magazine on an app. It takes forever. And by the end of the process, you keep thinking, wow, this is really kind of a mediocre digital experience I'm engaged in here where I'm literally turning pages like I would in the magazine, except they turn slower than I can do it by hand, number one. Occasionally, there's a little bit more, you know, digital media uh, pizzazz, a little bit of video, a little bit of animation. And you look at all that stuff and you say, well, does this really create added value? And the deeper they make the experience, the more interactive they make the experience, the more it becomes, frankly, less like a magazine and more like any other digital interactive experience. And you have to ask, well, why does that come from a magazine in the first place? Yeah, no, that's a good point. And and if you and if you really if you really extend, you know, the, the metaphor of, of the of the digital magazine and the ebooks, think about what you're really competing with. When you're in a paper form and you're sitting on someone's coffee table, you're competing with everything else on the coffee table. Right. When you jam that thing on an iPad, you're competing with every piece of content that everyone has access to out there that they can click on links. Um, I mean, you've got curated interest mix like Redef, platforms like Feedly and Flipboard, right, where you can collect all kinds of different writers that are out there and accumulate the content and binge it, scan it, whatever you want to do with it. That's right. I mean, originally, if you go back in time between newspapers and magazines, those were the exclusive curators of browsable content, right? That was it. Newspapers, magazines, that was it. Now... Um, curators are, li- are, are less than a dime a dozen. I mean, there's just infinite curators. So the idea that, I don't know, that, you know, Newsweek magazine, let's say, has some superior capacity to curate information <laughs> that's worth me investing the extra time and labor to download that magazine and peruse it from front to back, 
Um, I, I think that's really uh, questionable now. So I, th- I go back to the very beginning, which is, you know, if people are in fact subscribing to and buying the paper first and foremost, then maybe the whole premise of how we get magazines onto iPads and other digital devices is flawed. Well, listen, it comes back down to the elimination of these entry barriers, right? The cost of publishing, printing, distribution. So anyone now can build an audience around their writing. So, and what do they do? They start refining it and narrowing it until they're speaking directly to the interests and likes of their particular audiences. Mm-hmm. That's, that's what the newspapers and magazines are having a hard time understanding. And, and again, as people's attention broadens, as there are more and more media options being presented that come into their view, people are forced to narrow down their desires based on what interests them right now. I mean, I used to read as many new business books that came out as I possibly could, and I can't do that anymore. There's just too many. The number has overwhelmed me. So now I read nonfiction books that fit my particular interests. Hmm. My, my business book desires had to narrow because the population of content just kept exploding, <laughs> right? All right, it's time to move on to rants and raves. This is the part of the show we don't discuss with each other beforehand. What do you have this week, Tom? Yeah, I hope we're not both raving at the same thing, but... Let's, let's find out. I, I've got to, my rave goes to Jerry Seinfeld. I mean, did you, did you hear what happened? No. Oh, oh you're going to love this. So, he's, so at the award show, at the annual award show, at, during advertising week... He gets up on stage to accept his uh, his his accept to do his acceptance speech. He got the an honorary Clio. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure what for. It may have been that uh, little online thing that he's doing, comedians in cars with coffee. Right. You're going to have to wonder about whether this was classic Seinfeld humor or pure satire, because here he is. He's at the podium. He's got his Clio in his hand. He looks out at all these advertising executives, and he says. Because he can do this. He has the luxury in, you know, to be able to do it. He says, I love advertising because I love lying. He says, in advertising, everything is the way you wish it was. I don't care that it won't actually be like that when I actually get the product being advertised because in between seeing the commercial and owning the thing, I'm happy. And that's all I want. So he, he goes on, Mike. He says, we are a hopeful species, stupid, but hopeful. <laughs> but we're happy in that moment between the commercial and the purchase. And I think spending your life trying to dupe innocent people out of hard-won earnings to buy useless, low-quality, misrepresented items and services is an excellent use of your energy. <laughs> oh, that's classic. And I, I'm sure he got a standing, an awkward standing ovation for Listen, that. Listen, and that's, that's the lesson, right? Because everyone's shouting from the rooftops, be authentic. That's okay, right. Jerry was authentic Jerry. There you go. <laughs> I have a rave for you too this week. Um, I don't want to give you the title of the piece. It's from a publication called Springwise, but let me just read some of it to you, and I think its import will become apparent. Developed in conjunction with that, this is in Spain. Developing conjunction with advertising agency, the Cyrano's McCann, the project came about as a result of government increases to theater production tax in Spain in 2013, which obliterated audience figures. In order to win back fans, Barcelona's independent comedy theater company, uh, 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 Tetreno, I can't pronounce it, launched a show that promised to only charge audience members according to how much they laughed. (laughs) 
The venue <laughs> fitted tablets to the back of each seat, equipped with facial recognition technology. <laughs> each time patrons smiled or laughed, a charge of 0.3 euros was added to their seat ticket. Those who didn't find the show funny didn't have to pay too much, while those who laughed a lot were charged up to 24 euros. Now, get this. According to the creators, the show saw revenue of up to six euros more per customer than traditional productions and won 35% more spectators. So more people came for the chance to pay more because they enjoyed the show more. I just think that's so telling because that goes back to the heart of everything, which is if you give people something they desire, they will reward you for it. It's <laughs> not about the Groupon with 80% off that right. gets people to sample something and then give it a negative rating on Yelp. It's actually about giving people something they desire, and then indeed they will be grateful to give you more money because they desire it. Now, what I love about this too is some of the comments to this article. They're amazing. Here's one. This is a terrible idea. You're essentially incentivizing the audience to laugh less and keep up a grim demeanor. (laughs) (laughs) And here's another one. I agree. It's a horrible idea. What's next? Pay more at restaurants the more you enjoy your meal? (laughs) Well, Tom, actually, that is how it works. Exactly. (laughs) Better restaurants are more expensive. Flights would be free since hardly anyone enjoys those. Not to mention creepy. I would not want a camera to be focused on my facial expressions while doing anything. Now, obviously, it's a, it's, you know, it's a bit of an experiment, but I think the larger point is really profound, which is, look, give people something they like, they will pay for it. The challenge isn't getting it for nothing. The challenge is having an experience worth paying for and worth loving. No, you're absolutely right. And I think the other lesson goes back to the beginning about people gaming the system. Don't let people bring Halloween masks into the theater. <laughs> that's true that would be gaming the system i have one other mini rave i just got to squeeze this in real quick i know this is against the rules but i got to do it anyway do you watch american horror story i've seen it american horror story the new season of american horror story debuted about a week ago uh with star jessica lang and uh, a host of others it's freak show is the is the theme of the of this season um that first episode if you add in the three days that uh, dvrs provide uh, the highest ever ratings of any show on FX. And I, this is a rave not so much about American Horror Story, although I do love the show, but about the star Jessica Lang. Let's keep in mind, Jessica Lang was once a model who made her inauspicious debut in the inauspicious remake of King Kong in 1976. That's right. And was just uniformly mediocre throughout that movie. And then suddenly, over the course of only a couple years after that, when she made Francis and Tootsie and, and, you know, to now, she went from um, adequate to extraordinary. And she is truly uh, a miracle in this show. And she is just a miracle in everything she does. And she does, uh, at the end of the first episode of season four of American Horror Story, a cover on stage of David Bowie's Life on Mars, which you should absolutely Google. It's not to be missed. It's just awesome. I'm doing it as soon as we get off. All righty. That's Media Unplugged for this week. Please remember to subscribe to us at iTunes or on Stitcher. And while you're there, please rate the show. It helps other folks discover us. Come on. What do we have to do? Yeah. You can follow Tom on Twitter at Tom Asacker and Mark at Mark Ramsey Media. Send us your questions and comments using hashtag Media Unplugged. And if there's a media topic you want us to cover, tweet us. You can read the show notes and share the show at our website, MediaUnplugged.net. Special thanks to our new producer, 
Jeff Schmidt, exciting audio for media. You can find him at jeff-schmidt, S-C-H-M-I-D-T, dot com. For the great Tom Asacker, I'm Mark Ramsey. Thanks for listening.